Well, now I turn to our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning, which is Psalm 8, the 8th Psalm. We read here, the word of God is given to David the king and prophet, and as we'll see, especially verses 4 through 6 are have a special application to our Lord Jesus Christ. The caption of the psalm says, To the chief musician on the instrument of Gath, a psalm of David. So let's attend with reverence to the reading here of God's word as we read Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens, Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. That sends the reading of God's holy word for us this time. And let us briefly pray. Lord, we do... Thank you for your written word. Thank you that you have not left us as orphans, but sent the Holy Spirit, and that he brought to the apostles' remembrance all the things that Christ taught, and that he inspired all of the Old Testament scriptures. And so we have a full canon of scripture that can be trusted. So we pray now that that you would help us to understand it, and thereby apply to our lives the things that you would have us know and do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The last time we observed the Lord's Supper, I began a series on Christ in the Psalms. At that time, we looked at his eternal and pre-incarnate state as a person of the Godhead in connection to Psalm 33, especially verse 6, which says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Today we're going to consider the incarnation of the Son of God in connection to Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, as the New King James has it here, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. We know it's appropriate to connect these verses directly to Jesus Christ because that's exactly what Hebrews 2, 6 through 8 does. And we read that just a little bit earlier. Uh, We even saw recently in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 27, that Paul makes reference to the statement in verse 6, you have put all things under his feet, connecting it to Uh, the exaltation of Christ after his resurrection. 
his ascension and his session at the right hand of God, and all things are placed under his feet. All authority has been given to him. But today we're going to stick with how these verses connect to the incarnation of, the, of God the Son, when God the Son became a human being. It might be helpful simply to examine David's words in Psalm 8, verse by verse. Uh, we won't look closely at the whole psalm, but instead we'll concentrate on verses 4 through 6. But I'll go quickly uh, through the whole psalm, uh, just verse by verse, to begin with. David begins and ends the psalm with the same words found in, in the first half of verse 1 and then in verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Or we could translate it as how majestic is your name in all the earth. Notice the first Lord, if you're looking at your Bibles, is all in capital letters. Now that represents God's covenant name. Yahweh is the best we can guess it was pronounced. Uh, the second Lord, you'll notice, is not all caps. Uh, that's the Hebrew word Adonai, Lord or Master. And really, it's a form of an odd form of the word for Lord and Master that, that suggests he's our and my, or my and our Lord and Master. O Yahweh, our Lord or our Master, how excellent or how majestic is your name in all the earth, is what David is saying there. After beginning with that declaration then, uh, King David points out ways the Lord has shown himself to be excellent or majestic. He's set his own glory above that of the heavens that he has created. The second half of verse 1, who have set your glory above the heavens. God's glory shines brighter than that of the sun. It's more excellent than the beautiful light of the moon at night. It's more radiant and beautiful than the stars. He ordains strength for the weakest of his covenant people, glorifying himself by showing his strength in their weakness. As Paul quotes Jesus' words to him in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Here David expresses that same kind of sentiment poetically in verse 2, Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength. You know, babes and nursing infants aren't particularly strong, are they? And they don't speak particularly strongly. They can't even utter an actual word. But out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. The weakest of God's servants is more powerful, ultimately, than the strongest of fallen mankind. David contemplates God's glory reflected in the heavens, in the greatness and the, the vastness of the, uh, and the wonder, I should say, a, a beauty of the moon and stars. I've uh, since childhood loved astronomy and just stargazing in general and just uh, don't get to do it all that often anymore. But, but it's, it's so beautiful to be out somewhere away from any light pollution that can, that can uh, wash out the starlight and just see the moon and the stars at night. And David's contemplating that, and he wonders why God even cares 
for pitiful, tiny, weak, and fallen humankind when he's made all this glorious universe. That's in verses 3 and 4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? David is in awe that God cares for us at all, but then wonders all the more that the Lord has set mankind over his creation under God. Verses 5 through 8, For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. And so he concludes then in verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We note there, the Lord is our Lord, David says. He's speaking from the perspective of one of God's covenant people. God shows himself to be majestic, not only in the glories of the heavens, but in what he has chosen to do with mankind, and particularly his redeemed people. And so he shows himself to be all the more majestic. But we look closely, if we look closely, at verses 4 through 6, if we look there more carefully, in the light of related scriptures, we see even more reason to see that the name of the Lord is majestic, is excellent. In verse 4, David asks, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? Interestingly, a lot of emerges as we dig a little bit into the Hebrew text there, of that verse. For, for one thing, the verb translated visit there has connotations of caring for and watching over. It's, it's not just you know, stopping by for a cup of tea or something like that. It's not just a visit like that. I think a while back, I remembered the Hebrew of this verse incorrectly. I think it was in Sabbath school. And I think I said that it referred to Adam and his son Seth. And actually, it refers to Adam and his grandson, Seth's son, Enosh. More literally, the verse actually asks, What is Enosh that you are mindful of him and the son of Adam that you visit him? That's very telling. Well, we know, of course, that Noah was a descendant of Enosh, the son of Seth. So, so that's appropriate in one sense to say that it's an appropriate poetic term for the whole human race. We're all descended from Enosh, like we're all descended from Noah, and we're all descended from Adam. Enosh is the ancestor of us all. But the fact that rather than simply using Adam, what is Adam, which is the, the general term for human beings in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it's the normal Hebrew word for the human race, David uses Enosh, and he uses the expression son of Adam. That tells us some very important things. When in verses 5 and 6 he speaks of someone, someone's being a little lower than the angels, as the New King James has it, and crowned with glory and honor and having dominion over creation, we know he's not merely talking about the first Adam. He's not just talking about the human condition before the fall. This would apply very well to 
our condition before the fall. He made Adam and Eve. We know from Genesis 1 that God made humankind and used the word Adam to apply to both of them. Uh, made Adam in his own image, male and female. That's Genesis 1.27. And then in Genesis 1.28, he commands them to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over all the creatures. But we also know the familiar account from Genesis 3 of how our first parents sinned. And we might think, well, so this, this can apply to Adam, to mankind, before the fall. But does it really apply after? And David's choice of words shows it has to apply after as well. Since Adam, the first man, is our covenant representative, we all sinned when he sinned. We sinned in him. We've inherited his fallen, broken, sinful, and mortal nature. Before the fall, Adam and Eve exercised dominion perfectly. And Adam, as the head of the family, had this perfect dominion. After the fall, our relation with nature, our relationships with nature, is broken. You and I cannot exercise the kind of dominion at least the degree of dominion spoken of in these verses. We don't exercise it perfectly. We fail at it. But David's choice of words makes clear he cannot be thinking only about Adam before the fall. He's thinking of descendants of Adam. Enosh and the son of Adam. Of course, that can be translated as son of man, which was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. He's in wonder that God has made covenant with men. The reference to Enosh brings that to mind as, as well as, uh, because we see in Genesis 4.26, that it was in the days of Seth and his son Enosh that men began to call upon the name of Yahweh, the name of the Lord, the covenant name. That would imply that God revealed his covenant name to them. But for the time being... These verses are fulfilled in us imperfectly at best. Yes, we see that we have dominion over animals, ox and sheep, and even wild beasts. But as we'll see, these words are fulfilled perfectly in Jesus Christ. So let's move on. Verse 5. For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. Now the Hebrew more literally says... For, or and, or but, or yet, uh, you have made him lack a little from Elohim, and with glory, honor, with glory and honor have crowned him. Made him lack a little from Elohim. Now notice I didn't translate that Hebrew word there. That's because it can mean a couple different things, at least, in this context. Usually, we can tell from the verb tenses or other grammatical clues which way to translate the word Elohim in the Old Testament Hebrew. But the way this sentence is constructed leaves it a bit open. Elohim is a plural word. It's the plural of the word God. When from the grammar we can tell it refers to a single being, uh, we know it's using a, a, a device that's common to Semitic languages, and especially Hebrew, in which if you use the plural for something, but 
it's clearly meant to be a singular, so the verbs are conjugated to the singular and that sort of thing, then, then you know that it's talking about the biggest thing of that category. A great example is from the book of Job, the behemoth. That literally is the word for cattle or beast of the earth. But when we're talking about that in the singular, it means the biggest land animal. The behemoth is the biggest land animal. Similarly, if you're talking about this, these beings that we can call gods, we'll get into that a little bit here, and there's one that is called by the plural, but it's a singular being, well then we know it's the biggest of that category. And of course, we're talking here about the infinite God. The one true God, Yahweh. But it can also mean what we might call small g gods. It can be the gods of the nations, false gods, demons that disguise themselves as the gods of the nations. Or it can mean the heavenly beings who dwell in the glorious presence of the Lord. What we commonly call angels. That's why it's translated here in the New King James as angels. The ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament renders it that way as angels, as does the, the King James, the New King James. Uh, other translations may say heavenly beings or even gods or God. It could easily be God as our Psalters have it. And quoting the Septuagint, uh, the he Hebrews chapter 2 verse 7 says angels. Some of your translations of Hebrews 2.7 might have, you have made him for a time a little lower than the heavenly beings. Because it's applying that particularly to Jesus Christ. That reflects, uh, again, the Septuagint as well, where the word uh, brakuti appears, which means something like for a space or for a time. But Hebrews 2 probably emphasizes that because it's showing how these words particularly apply to Jesus. For a time, not forever, for a time, he became a little lower than the angels, than the heavenly beings. Both Jesus Christ in his incarnation and the rest of humanity were made a little lower than the heavenly beings. But Jesus is not now lower than the heavenly beings. But if we read it as a little lower than God... It remains true both for us and for Jesus in regard to his human nature. In Philippians 2, 5-7, through 7, we, we read that God the Son did not count equality with the Father and the Holy Spirit, equality with God, as something to be held onto, to be grasped so tightly that he would be unable to become human and thus be the Savior of mankind. For a time he became lower than the angels, but even now, in his human nature, because he took on that human nature, he is lower in his human nature than God. But lower only than God. As God, he's above everything. As man, he's above everything but God. As Paul reflects in 1 Corinthians 15, 27, For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. So in other words, God puts all things under Christ's feet. Everything's under Christ's feet except God. So the first half of Psalm 8.5 deals especially 
with the incarnation of Christ. You have made him a little lower than the angels. While the second half is fully realized in Christ's exaltation. And you have crowned him with glory and honor. There's a glory and honor that God has crowned a whole human race with in terms of, of giving us dominion over this creation that he has made. But only Christ has that full glory and honor that he's been crowned with. In one sense, we could say that Christ now has the authority and the position that Adam should have had had he never fallen. He also has greater glory and honor because in order to attain that position, he perfectly obeyed even to the point of death on a cross. Philippians 2, 9-11, through 11, Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth, of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So let's flesh out more thoroughly the, the idea that he was made a little lower than God and or the heavenly beings. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So there's his eternal Godhead. But then John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Philippians 2.8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Colossians 1, 16 through 20. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile to himself by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Or put more simply, 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying and true and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom, Paul says, I am the chief. Hebrews 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. And then Hebrews 2, verses 6 through 9, but one testified, we just read this earlier, in a certain place saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You've put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But, we, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. In other words, there are still people in rebellion. You're still... A world in rebellion against Christ. But, Hebrew says, we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death and crowned with glory and honor, that he, 
by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So Jesus fulfills Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6 perfectly. Hebrews 2, 10 through 13, For it, it was fitting for him, for whom all things, and by whom all things, by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, this is Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. And again, this is Second Samuel 22, verse 3, I will put my trust in him. And again, Isaiah 8, 18, here I am and the children God has given me. In Hebrews 2.18, For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. All of these scriptures are telling us that God took on a human nature so that he might become the savior of his people. And that's what's predicted in Psalm 8. And that's what the sacrament we're about to observe points to. Jesus, the eternal Son, God the Son, took on human nature, took on real flesh and blood, and gave his life for the sins of his people. Trust in him and reflect on that as you observe this sacrament. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that Jesus gave himself for us and that he became one of us to do so even as was predicted in many Old Testament scriptures, like Psalm 8. Grant that our faith in him might therefore be built up through this sacrament especially. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.